I don't know. I grew a lot as an artist making this movie because I think I, I tend to be pretty talky as a director, like with my actors and it was taken away as a toolkit and, and really needing to express what I needed from a performance through this different medium and through sign. It was just, it was a really cool, amazing journey for me. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Sean Hader's new musical drama, Coda. The film follows Ruby, a child of deaf adults who is the only hearing person in her deaf family. After the family fishing business is threatened, Ruby must choose between staying with her parents and leaving to pursue her love of music. In addition to Coda, Ms. Hader's other directorial credits include the feature film Tallulah and episodes of the series Little America, Glow, Orange is the New Black, and The Path. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Hader spoke with fellow director Susie Unessi about filming Coda. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hi, everyone. And Thank you, Sean, for that gorgeous, gorgeous film. And I know you won the audience award at Sundance, but I feel like us as a crowd, you having this theatrical experience, I feel like we should give that standing ovation that you probably would have gotten with the audience award. So masterfully done. So thank you. Really beautiful. And thank you all for coming. I thought we could dive in and I wanted to start with a little bio of you since you've done so much um, and had such an incredible career. So I wanted to give a couple of highlights for people in the room, which your first short film, which was through the Directing Women Workshop. So it premiered at Cannes, won an award there, which is super exciting. Your first feature premiered at Sundance in um, dramatic competition. And then this film swept the awards (laughs) at Sundance this past year, winning the Grand Jury Prize, a special jury prize for the ensemble cast, a directing prize, and the Audience Award. So such incredible work, so accomplished, and I'm so excited to dive into your process. Um, Starting with, the film was based off of a French film. So I'd love to hear about your experience making this distinctly your own since it feels so cut from the fabric of that community in Gloucester. So if you could let us know a little bit about that process. Yeah, I mean, I it, it was interesting being presented with the idea of a remake because I think I'm always a little bit suspicious of a remake. You know, it's like the movie exists, it's out in the world, you know, why are we doing it again? Um, and so there was just something, um, I kind of went in like, I'm going to watch the film and see, and at the time it was a studio movie, it was at Lionsgate and it was set up there and they had the rights to do an American remake. And I watched the original film And it was very moving. Um, And at the core of the story, there was something really interesting, the idea of this coda, you know, this character who's, and a lot of codas grow up really culturally deaf, you know, within the deaf community with ASL as their first language. And then they're sort of 
living between the hearing world and the deaf world, and they're kind of a part of both, but also part of neither, and like this tension of being between these two worlds. And I thought that was a very interesting character to explore. And tonally, the French film is like a very broad comedy. And the actors, you know, there's hearing actors playing deaf. I felt like ASL was not explored in a deep way and deaf culture. And there were so many kind of opportunities to take the film and the story way deeper and dive in and really explore ASL and deaf culture and present that on screen, which I feel like we haven't really seen that on screen before. And then, of course, um, and then I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I would go, Gloucester was a place I knew really well. We would go up there every summer when I was a kid. And the town was this really interesting, you know, contradiction. It was like this beautiful New England quintessentially kind of nostalgic New England town with these vistas and this rocky shoreline and very cinematic and beautiful. Also just a place that had been hit really hard. And I watched from my childhood to kind of my adult life, this fishing industry completely collapsed and the waterfront kind of became these abandoned warehouses and these processing plants that were kind of left behind and the whole kind of commercial space of the town disappeared and all the fishing boats disappeared. You know, there used to be 700 boats out in the harbor and now there's like six. So I thought it was just a really like kind of a portrait of like a disappearing working class America. And I love the characters in that town. I mean, those fishermen guy, you know, the Boston North Shore guy who's like always got a wisecrack and something, you know, slightly to say to you, but also make you laugh. And, and so I just love the idea of the, the, this family as this fishing family And I went in and pitched it to Lionsgate and they were like super excited about the idea. And then I was very adamant that I wanted a deaf cast and I wanted, you know, a good, almost half the movie was in ASL and I really wanted it to be true ASL where Ruby was not speaking through those scenes. And, you know, we were exploring sign language and silence and, and that became a challenge at the studio in terms of getting the movie, you know, financed there and getting them to greenlight it. And then Patrick Washberger ended up leaving the studio Um, And it was really a project he had championed from the beginning. And when he left, he took the movie with him out of the studio. And we ended up setting it up independently and making it completely on our own um, in Gloucester, you know, sort of hard scrabble indie movie um, with no distribution in place. And so then that Sundance moment was a real moment because I think when the pandemic hit, there was a real fear, like, what, how is this movie going to come out? You know, is it going to find a path forward? And it was a completely magical Sundance experience, which of course I had at home with my five and seven year old (laughs) and, you know, yes, won all of these awards. And I was like to my husband, like, how do we celebrate? Like, we got to do something. We're like eating cold Thai food and like took a shot of tequila and we were like, woo, Sundance. Um, so it was, it was surreal, but also incredible. And actually like, kind of a beautiful way to have the movie come out because I think it's a story about family. And if there's anything I feel like I've learned in the past year and a half is just, you know, or is it two years now? Oh my God, how long have we been in this pandemic? Um, But I think a lot of us were either trapped with family or away from family. And there's like a real longing to kind of be with people and be with people we love. And so I think there was something beautiful actually about like, this was a story that was very simply about that. And then honestly to have that Sundance just with my husband and kids at home in our little bubble actually felt kind of right. The film also, it feels 
so authentic, so researched, so studied. And you had mentioned back there that you had written for Pixar too. What was your research process? And had you taken something from, because I know that process is so iterative. How deep did you go into the community to really understand where they were coming from? Because again, it feels so authentic. I am a big researcher in general. It's like a huge part of my process is, is research. I think, you know, I wrote on Orange is New Black for three seasons and there were jokes in that writer's room that like I was the one who actually knew how to make a bomb out of things you could buy in the commissary. Like I could actually do it because I think I was so into kind of the research element and, and talking to people and, and talking to real prisoners and finding out what this. So I think it's just always been a part of my process. Um, and on this it was especially important because I was an outsider coming into this community and I was not a part of the deaf community. And this is a community that has been, you know, barely represented. And then when, when characters have been represented, it's often misrepresented. And so I felt an enormous responsibility coming to the story that if I was going to be the person to tell this story, I had to make sure that I was surrounded with deaf collaborators, you know, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera. I, I felt like I needed to really immerse myself in the deaf community and be very conscious of, of kind of story elements, characters, you know, like I was presenting this culture. And so from the beginning, when I was writing the script, I really, um, you know, I made deaf friends. I was going, you know, started studying ASL. I felt like it was very important for me to learn the language um, and to understand how the language was structured and worked. And I knew that a good, you know, I wrote the script in English, but that there was going to be this translation process. And I really wanted to be aware of how the language worked for that. Um, I started going to Deaf West plays. I don't know if you guys have seen Deaf West Theater, but it's a wonderful theater company in Los Angeles. A lot of collaboration between hearing artists and deaf artists. And that's where I discovered Troy Kotzer, who plays the father in the movie. And so that was revelatory to see him on stage and go, oh my God, that guy is Frank. And, you know, honestly, and then having CODA advisors and consultants and deaf consultants on the script. And then there were two really important women for me, Alexandria Wales and Ann Tomasetti, who were my ASL masters, our directors of artistic sign language is the position. And it's sort of like a dramaturg, but they're the directors of ASL on set. And Alexandria did the translation with me of the script which was very interesting because it really forced me to dive really deep into my own writing because in order to sign back a line to me, you know, we would sit there with the script and we would go line by line through and it wasn't just a one-to-one translation where she could take a piece of dialogue and, you know, just show me the sign. She would say, well, what does this mean? And what is this, what is underneath this for this character? And, and then she could kind of give me sign options and we would go back and forth with that. And so that was a beautiful process to kind of dig into my own writing in that way too and go like, well, what does this character, what are they saying in this moment? And then on set, Anne was really my deaf eyes on set. She was at the monitor with me every step of the way. And I felt like in a way she released me to really be so focused on performance because ultimately I'm always going to have a hearing perspective. I'm never going to catch the things that she's going to catch. You know, Troy was sneaking in all kinds of secret f***s into his lines and I didn't notice. And Anne would be like, he just said f*** again. You're trying to get a PG-13 rating on this movie. Um, So... I, there were just like kind of 
And there were really beautiful moments that we had, I think, in conversations and discussions on set because between Troy and Marley and Daniel and Anne and Alexandria, they're just like the culture of ASL really took over our set. Um, and I found that kind of, I was signing with my actors to direct them at that point. And then the crew really wanted to learn to sign as well. And people were picking it up. And so camera operators would kind of learn what they needed to, you know, and so it was a very interesting thing to just watch the set bend towards the culture and let the culture kind of take over the set. And it, and it was a beautiful language for the set, honestly. I mean, it's the best. You can talk while you're rolling. Like signing is great. Like every crew member should honestly learn to sign because you can full on, you know, have a conversation, an intimate conversation from 50 feet away. And so there were just kind of these beautiful things in the process. And then in terms of research too, like that fishing community, I really wanted to honor the fishing community and I really wanted to make sure that their story was told. And so I spent a lot of time in Gloucester while I was writing, um, meeting with the Gloucester Fishermen's Wives Association and having them, you know, going down to the local bars and meeting those guys and talking to them about what had happened in the town. And, um, and so I, I really approach it like that every step of the way, I think in terms of, and my research is mostly people, you know, I love talking with people. And so when I'm writing, when I'm delving into a project, I think I tend to want to do that as opposed to kind of Google and come up with those stories because you never know where those moments lead. You know, there was a Coast Guard advisor that I'd reached out to who was the harbor master in Gloucester, who's actually the guy who boards the boat. He's the guy who jumps, does this amazing stunt because he'd done a million Coast Guard boardings and he could just do it. But he, this guy, TJ, who I reached out to when I was writing the script because I wanted Coast Guard language, you know, for the Coast Guard. But as we got into talking and, and I told him what the story was about and I told him about, you know, these characters of these deaf fishermen and he said, oh, there was this Coast Guard case like years ago. There was something I'll go find. I'll ask the guys and ask around. There was something with a, and it was that this deaf fisherman had been boarded by the Coast Guard, hadn't heard the hadn't heard them, you know, call him over the radio and he'd had his captain's license revoked. And, and that story point came from that conversation. And I find that like, when I have these conversations with people, you just never know where they're going to lead. And it, and it makes the storytelling so much deeper and richer. You definitely feel that. And how many days did you have shooting the film? We, 30 days. Wow. I mean, incredible. And four days at sea, which was like deeply at sea. So <laughs> in order to shoot the fishing elements, we had to, um, this is ground fishing and it's a dragger boat. And when I met with my Marine coordinator, he was like, Sean, you got to make these guys lobstermen or something like this is like, but shoot it in the Harbor, have them pulling up traps. And I'm like, no, no, I really want this kind of fishing. I want this kind of, you know, drag. It's so cinematic. And he's like, but you're going to actually have to go fishing, <laughs> which is three miles out to sea. Um, and we had to go out with like a flotilla of like seven boats, you know, and you do boat to boat transfers anytime anyone, you know, we had our picture boat and which could only hold like 11 people on it or 10 people on it. And then we had, you know, our camera boat, we had safety boats, we had, and, and those are big weight. Like the moment you get out like deep, ocean, you know, we're in five foot waves doing boat to boat transfers. It was very treacherous. I 
was okay all through rehearsal. We did a lot of rehearsal going out with the actors and teaching them how to fish with local fishermen and having them figure out how to run the machinery and stuff. And I was totally, I, I'm a very like most motion sick person. Like I get car sick if I look at my phone in the car. So I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do on a boat. And we, I was fine. Like we went out in rehearsal. We went out all the, you know, but then the first day of shooting, I didn't like consider that I'd be looking at a monitor the whole time. <laughs> and the moment I was just focused on the monitor and people on the crew were taking bets on who was going to puke first because every, someone was going to. And I remember thinking we were like an hour going out and I was like, oh my God, it's going to be me. And like, what happens when the director is the first person to go? Um, but it was a very intense shoot. Um, but very beautiful. It was a really, it, we really became a family. And can you speak a little bit more to the rehearsal process and what your process is for rehearsing? And if, especially with the boat scenes, were you going deeper into those scenes in rehearsal or how much was just on the day? I mean, this was more rehearsed than usually what I do because, um, as a director, I, I felt like I needed to understand how to shoot those ASL scenes there are all kinds of kind of, first of all, keeping someone's hands in frame at all times, you know, and so like the close up is out, which is such a, you know, part of the cinematic, to, you know, toolkit is going into close up. Um, and also you cannot cut away from somebody while they're talking, which was a very interesting thing because I think, and so often in post, you know, you, you need some a piece of information in a scene and you can, you can throw in an ADR line and add it later and just not be on the person talking or we could be in a scene together, but I have the camera just on you because it's about you in that moment. But really I knew I was going to have to, because the language has to be on screen. Um, and I wanted all the signs to be on screen so that the language was actually readable because I think a big problem in the deaf community when they see themselves presented on screen is that your the hands are cut off and you're not actually seeing the language. So it was interesting, my cinematographer, Paola Huidobro, and I really spent a lot of time watching the scenes and watching in rehearsal and, and really blocking and choreographing with the camera to figure out, you know, like, oh, if we do an over the shoulder and we're here, but actually the actor's signing higher, we can read the sign over their shoulder and, and really figuring out how to kind of do a dance with our actors to find those things. So a lot of those family scenes in the house, we really did spend a lot of time in rehearsal. The boat was a lot of rehearsal that was more just about them learning that skill set because I'd, you know, I had fishing doubles who could have come in and run that boat. And it's really dangerous when you're out there, like those, that winch and that big net and all of that is like pretty treacherous. And Troy and Daniel and Amelia were all so game and they were like, no, no, we want to do this. We want to figure out what these guys do to the point that they were like, checking lobsters to see if they were pregnant. You know what I mean? By the end of it, I'm like, guys, it's, to you know, Troy would be like mending nets in his spare time with a needle and thread. And I was like, there's no scene where you're mending nets. He's like, yeah, but Frank would know how to mend nets. So, um, so I think what was beautiful is that they really learned how to run that boat. And so by the time we were shooting, the captain was driving this guy, Paul Vitali, whose boat it was. And then Troy and Daniel and Amelia were like, pulling in that net and dumping the fish and sorting it. And it was sort of like almost became documentary style for those scenes, which was great because we couldn't have very much crew on that boat. 
So that was a lot of rehearsal. And then the music required a lot of rehearsal too, because obviously we were working with a real Berkeley choir. We found a group of Berkeley kids that were already a choir. They were too good to be Gloucester High School. So then I had to go out and cast like some kids who really couldn't sing and mix them in there. And those numbers, you know, I also wanted to record all of the music live on set because I really wanted to capture kind of the mistakes and the, and the, the moments, you know, when... And Amelia had never had a singing lesson before. She had this beautiful voice, but she'd never trained formally. And so she was growing so much as a singer that she was having these vocal breakthroughs on set in the moment. And so the fact that we were capturing it, you know, that it wasn't pre-recorded, that they we weren't going to do it later, like we got a lot of those moments kind of where her voice would break through and we'd finish the take and she would look at me like, I can't believe I just did it. It came out like I finally hit that note or, and so that required a lot of work, you know, to have, I had a music director, um, Marius DeVries and Nick Baxter, and they were working with, um, this choir and trying to figure out the arrangements. And, um, so it was a lot more rehearsal than I would normally do. I tend to like I like to be very prepared in terms of like knowing I'm shot list and, and I'm, you know, I like storyboards and, but I like to let my actors kind of discover what they want to do in the moment. But in this case, I felt like we were all needed to be a bit more of an organism. And so it, it was really helpful to have more rehearsal time. I'd love to hear more about the music um, and how you came up with those songs and the storytelling and also um, hearing that you recorded everything on set. So there was no playback for any of those. There was some playback, but it was the, but all of the vocals were captured live on set. Some of them, what like the ones we had to out on the fishing, but those boats were so loud that Amelia actually singing on the boat. I think we had to go back in and do some work on that afterwards. Um, but for the most part, no, we really were, we would play back like a track that they could like, a um, a track to the rhythm track that they could kind of here, but yeah, no, we were recording almost all of it live. And in the writing process, were those just songs you knew? Like, was that everything was found in the writing process by the time you were? No, no, no. I mean, we, I mean, the process of music, especially on an indie movie, when you have no money, you're like trying to get music and especially the known songs, you know, we, I had written that Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell song, You're All I Need to Get By. That I had written into the script because it was super hard. You know, you hear the song five times in the film and it has to fulfill all these different narrative moments that are quite emotional. You know, it's, you know, the song she falls in love with Miles to singing together in the bedroom. And then it becomes the song she sings to her father in this very emotional moment. And and it really needed to lyrically kind of hit all of these beats and be a song that you wanted to hear five times in the movie. Um, so that song I'd written into the script, but then in all of our kind of talking about uh, about what songs we could use and where we were going to end up. And we were actually trying to make a deal with a label so that we could, you know, get just like a chunk of music for at a cost. And I remember we ended up making a deal with Sony and they sent me like a big list of songs that I could use. And I like scanned right through and I went down and I saw Marvin Gaye and then I saw You're All I Need to Get By and I like screamed. I was so excited that that was a possibility. Um, but you're both sides, like both sides now was a discovery. I had originally written it as Landslide by Stevie Nicks. And of course, after I watched a hundred girls audition with Landslide, I was like, I can never hear this song again. And I definitely can't put it in the movie. Um, 
And it's a very quiet song. You know, it wasn't right necessarily, but it was a nice, it was a nice song to sort of hear people's voices. And then my music supervisor, Alex Patsavas, actually came up with the idea of Both Sides Now. And I love Joni Mitchell and I deeply love that song. And I also love that, you know, Joni recorded that song when she was, you know, it was on her first album when she was just starting out in her 20s. And then, you know, it became a song she re-recorded at, you know, in 2000 and when she was in her 60s and the song was transformed completely. I mean, she, all of her life experience kind of changed the way she sang her own song and it was perfect in sort of thematically for the movie, the idea of coda and being a coda and perspective um, and looking at things from two different sides and coming of age. And she's talked about that song being the end of her childhood. So it was beautiful. And I think Amelia was very intimidated by singing that song because it's iconic and it's Joni Mitchell. And um, But she connected so much to it. And I think once we did that signed interpretation of it with Alexandria and she learned that we realized that there was going to be kind of a different way to express that song that was so beautiful and then the choir numbers were really just finding it with Marius and Nick and really playing around with who Mr. V was and what he would be into and we kind of had this idea of him as a character and what he would be introducing his students to um and so we kind of just went through and tried out a lot of, there was a lot of trial and error of kind of trying out different songs with the choir and seeing what worked and seeing what felt really fun and then landing on the song choices that we had in the film. And I, I love the music and the movie. Ultimately, I think it was, it was a great journey to find exactly the right pieces. So great. I'll be looking up the soundtrack when the I get The soundtrack home. is really fun, actually. I'm like, I listen to it in my car and I'm like, wait, I should have, I should be over those songs by now, but it's really fun. Can you speak to working with actors, especially because you studied acting? So are there any particular, especially for a group of directors, books that you're like, please read this book, things not to do. We'd love to just hear about your process. Um, yeah, I mean, I went to acting school. I went to Carnegie Mellon and studied, you know, at a conservatory acting school. So I started out as an actor. I mean, my advice is to take an acting class because nothing will teach you about how it feels to be an actor, like acting and being on the other side of it. Um, it's very vulnerable, you know, and I think that that's the thing that I always hold on to as a director is it doesn't matter how successful someone is or how skilled someone is. It's a very vulnerable experience to act. And um, I think trust is the most important thing, like just establishing that connection. And every actor is so different and works so differently that for me, it's about learning that actor. It's not kind of like, this is my general rule with actors. And certain actors want an entire, you know, they want to talk a lot and they want to, you know, kind of an emotional roadmap of the scene and some actors really just want one thing to focus on and that frees them up to to explore and so for me it's really about like getting to know my actors and, and understand how they work and in this case it was very interesting because there was a language barrier I mean I had been studying sign you know for at that point a year and a half and maybe a little longer, but I was studying, you know, with a teacher in a class, it was not the same as trying to communicate a directing note in sign language. And we had interpreters on set and I had originally thought, okay, I'm going to direct through the interpreters. But, you know, interpreters come from all over. They're not necessarily always creative people who've been in that process before. 
And it's such a specific language, like the language of acting and the language of performance. And also, I don't always have the perfect word as a director to say to an actor. It's not necessarily about my word choice. It's about like being very connected and kind of what sometimes what's happening on my face or what I'm communicating emotionally with my eyes. And when I started directing Marley and Troy and Daniel and there was an interpreter there, I realized they were looking at the interpreter and not looking at me. And so we were missing out on that connection. And it was after a couple of takes on the first day. And I was like, I can't, I cannot do this. I mean, interpreter, I mean, interpreters are amazing and absolutely necessary and made life on our set beautifully flow and made communication, you know, made it possible to make this film. And yet at the same time, it felt like I had somebody between that relationship and so I went up to Troy and Marley and Daniel and I said, I guys, my sign language is like, you know, not, I'm not fully fluent at this point. I'm conversational. Um, this might be really messy, but can I just sign with you directly? And can we work like this? And if I don't know a sign, I'll gesture or I'll bring in the interpreter and we'll have the, per, you know, that person clarify. But I really think it's important that we have this trust. And they were all three of them like, yes, please. Like it was clear that they were hungry for it too. So it was a very interesting process for me as a director because I was trying to figure out how to do what I do and yet do it with my body. And I didn't always have the sign, you know, for what I wanted to say. And so sometimes it was pantomiming. Sometimes it was, you know, sometimes it was sort of, us having kind of an initial conversation where we felt really connected about something or, or coming up with our own kind of shorthand for, for performance or for the characters. Um, and then we had wonderful, you know, we started out with seven interpreters by the end. I think we had three that we hung on to because they were really people that could hang in the middle of that conversation. And they were all CODAs, by the way. So I think they had a personal connection to the story. But it was amazing. I mean, I felt like I've never connected to actors so much. And I've never had so much trust. Um, and I felt like I was really pushing them in a way, you know, Marley Matlin kept saying, you know, oh my God, I've been doing this for 35 years since Children of a Lesser God, but directors often don't direct me because they kind of feel like, okay, she's doing her sign language thing and I don't know what that is fully. And it seems like that must be right if that's what she's doing. And so great, one or two takes and like, we're good. And I think... I was just interested in delving into who these characters were and really pushing the performances. And, and I remember the first day Marley saying to me, am I doing something wrong? And I was like, no, this is like, we're just working on the character. And, and she was so relieved and excited, honestly, to have that kind of work and really digging deep and pushing out in different directions and stuff. And so it was a pretty amazing, you know, it was a very unique experience. And Amelia was only 17 years old. So she was a kid, you know, being thrown into this and, you know, such a hard worker and had trained so hard to be a part of this. Um, and she and I had both been learning ASL. So I think we were also honestly using it to communicate when there were no deaf actors on set sometimes because it was like a private language where I felt like she could be up on the top of the quarry cliff and I could be down on the water and I could give her an, a note intimately kind of from that far away. I don't know. I grew a lot as an artist making this movie because I think it was like, I, I'm, I, I tend to be pretty talky as a director, like with my actors. And it was having that 
taken away as a toolkit and, and really needing to express what I needed from a performance, um, through this different medium and through sign, it was just, it was a really cool, amazing journey for me. That's, you definitely feel that heart that feels like you're speaking about on screen and even in hearing you talk about the silence, because one of my favorite Rumi quotes is, there's a voice that doesn't use words, listen, which that beautiful moment you have in the auditorium. Was that something that was scripted or something that you found in the edit? And how did you navigate building to that moment? It was, it was definitely scripted. It was actually, I knew that I wanted to take the sound out there. I had a couple other places that I was going to take the sound out. Actually, I had planned in the bar scene where Leo's in the bar and he's watching that conversation with all of the fishermen in the bar. I had planned to actually take the sound out there because I had a very interesting conversation with Daniel about um, just trying to follow a hearing conversation when you're deaf and people are not signing at a table and the way that you need to kind of be a detective and like you notice someone, you know, makes a joke and then someone laughs over here and you don't know what they laughed at or you read, you know, lip read someone, but you get half the line and then they pick up their beer and cover their lip and then it's gone. And I had this really interesting and I had shared, um, he wrote a thing for me and Ann Tomasetti wrote a thing for me and I shared it with my DP and she ended up operating that scene and really trying to kind of be him in that moment of what it's like to follow a hearing conversation. And the scene was super powerful without any sound. However, it robbed the later scene, you know, in the edit, suddenly it was like, oh, it, I, I really need to save this for the concert because I need it to hit people hard. And if you, if it became something that we were doing throughout the movie, it felt like it was going to become like, oh, this thing that we do when we drop the sound. And so I had always planned on doing it in the concert. I was a very powerful thing to discover in the edit, actually, because I think the kids were so great and the concert was so much fun that I think the first time we cut it, we really almost cut it like you would traditionally cut a concert scene, you know, in a movie. And then we realized like, this is going to be the anti-concert scene. Like this is going to be kind of all about basically, you know, Frank and Jackie and Leo and their experience and, and their experiences that they're not connecting with us or relating to it. And then that feeling, which has been described to me so much of looking for clues, you know, like when you cannot have an experience and you're, you're, you know, in a hearing centric environment, like a school concert and Troy has a CODA daughter who's the same age as Amelia and Marley has four CODA kids. So they had a lot of experience with this. They're like, and Marley's like, oh my God, you know how many concerts I've sat through with my kids? Like, and you know, I'm like, keep my phone down here so I can like be online <laughs> the whole time. Um, but it was kind of amazing again to talk with them and go like, so what are you guys doing? It's like, well, we watch the audience to find out what's happening on stage. And so those moments um, of kind of looking around and trying to feel like that the way that they can connect to Ruby in that moment is to see how other people are connecting to her voice. And in that I actually put my parents in there. They are two of the the couple that you see. And that was funny because my dad, I actually cut my dad out of my first movie and he like never let me hear the end of it. And every time he would introduce me, he'd be like, this is my daughter, Sean. She made a movie called Tallulah. She cut me out of it. Um, 
He was like deep background, by the way. He didn't even have a scene. He was like on the street in Tallulah and that scene left the movie, not because of him. But so I had to put my parents in the movie and then they kept, my dad kept looking into camera, like straight into camera. And we were, you know, we had like 300 extras there that day. And I kept having to march over and be like, dad, like stop looking at camera. And he'd be like, I wasn't, I wasn't. My mom would be like, he was, I saw him. Um, so but it was very profound as like hilarious and weird as that was on the day. It's very profound for me to see my own parents in that sequence. Um, because it's just sort of meta, you know, it's like the, the film making the film and, and my parents being in it in that moment, which is about trying to connect to your kid and their art, um, was pretty amazing. And then a lot of sound designers fought me on that silence and everybody wanted to put something there, like a just a low rumble or a tone or something almost, you know, imperceptible that just you might feel but not hear. And I really wanted it to be true silence. Because when I speak with Troy, you know, there's many experiences of being deaf, you know, for Troy and Daniel, who are fully deaf, hear absolutely nothing, have been deaf since birth. They hear nothing, you know, they hear absolute silence. And so this idea that like to, to make, put something there that gives a hearing audience something to grab onto in that moment felt like it was romanticizing that experience in a way that didn't feel real to what it was. And I think it's very, um, it's very intense for audiences to, I think, sit through that. And I've had a lot of people express how intense it is. Um, I think because it's, you've watched these characters and you've fallen in love with them and you sort of feel like you know them at that point in the film, but then you don't know what it's like to be them and you get two minutes of being them. And that's a very different thing. And I, I, I love that scene. It's the scene that I'm probably most proud of in the film. And for those moments where you get pushback in your work, do you have any rituals or routines or are you like test audience or what's your, what's your way to navigate working with your team? I think most of the time it's just trusting my own gut. Um, you know, I think in that case, when it's, when it's a creative collaboration and it's someone that I'm hiring to, you know, be on my team, you know, I'm, I, I love, I hire artists because they're artists and I always want to tap their brains and, and, and let them push back and always have it be a discussion. At the end of the day, though, I felt like, no, this is what I want and this is what we're doing. I think those moments are harder when you're like trying to get the movie made. You know, those moments of when do you push back and when do you compromise and when do you hold your ground? And I think that's always a dance, you know, like when is this a compromise that means we're going to get to make the film? And when is this a compromise that sacrifices the integrity of the story and means that the movie shouldn't get made? And I felt like there was a lot of that in the journey of trying to get this movie made was kind of, I knew there was a way that I wanted to make this film. And I felt like if that, if it wasn't going to be made that way, then I would rather see the film not get made than, than make it in, you know, with those compromises. And with the sibling dynamic, it was so rich, <laughs> so true, so rare that we see siblings in that way portrayed as the they can be to each other. How did you get that out of them? And do you feel like that was something on the page or something in rehearsal or hanging out with the two actors? I I mean, to me, Leo is is hugely important in the film because I think 
he is sort of the person, you know, this family is in a codependent dynamic. They're in a kind of, you know, um, this is not a healthy thing for anybody in the family. And I think Leo can see that. And I think Leo is the older brother and he is independent and he does navigate the hearing world well. And he's got his iPad and he can negotiate with the fishing auction guy. And a lot of it was looking at like Ruby and talking to Amelia and going, you know, yes, there's this idea of this is my responsibility and it's a bit of a burden. At the same time, a lot of the codas I spoke with, you know, being the interpreter from a young age gives you a huge amount of control. It gives you a sense of importance and self-worth that I think a lot of CODA kids are reluctant to let go of because you have adults looking to you and that feels very important. And so there's a part of Ruby that's butting in when she doesn't need to, you know, and is not allowing kind of this, her parents to grow and be out there and navigate the world. And I love the line that he says to her on the beach when he says, let them figure out how to deal with deaf people, because I think she's actually the person who's preventing that from happening. And so a lot of the work between those two was actually understanding that they both have a really solid case here. You know what I mean? Like Ruby didn't ask to be in this position. And yet at the same time, she is complicit in kind of this dynamic that started to happen. And, and it is, she does need to go. Um, and there's a generational thing too. I think a lot of younger deaf people are way more fluent in technology. They're way more comfortable navigating, texting, being on their phone, you know, using apps that can be voice to text translation. Like, and so there is a generational gap, I think too, even within the deaf community in terms of, you know, um, that, and that was something Daniel and I talked a lot about and, and really tried to explore. Um, but also they just loved each other and I think they loved giving each other shit. And so that was, that was a really fun thing to find. Well, thank you so much, Sean. And thank you to the DGA for having this screening and bringing us back to the theater. So we look forward to seeing what's next. Thank you guys for coming out. It's really great to share this with audiences. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 